Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Reagan Gillum, a host on the channel, and today I'm talking to Dr. Bryce Henson, who is the author of the book Emergent Quilombos, Black Life and Hip Hop in Brazil, published by the University of Texas Press. Dr. Henson, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk about your book, um, Emergent Quilombos. I feel like I watched it becoming um, coming to fruition over these years of research. And um, congratulations on on publishing the book. And um, I can't wait to, to hear more about it. So in the book, uh, Emergent Quilombos, you examine uh, hip hop in Salvador Bahia. And so the question that we like to begin with is how did you come to study hip hop music and culture in Brazil? And how did you come to write the book Emergent Quilombos? Yeah, so this is a multi-layered question, um, as I'm sure most of these are. Um, So it's great to talk about this a little bit more. And and like you said, you've you've seen this journey develop uh, way back in actually uh, actually the very beginning of this research. Uh, So actually even before I got to my PhD program, Uh, As an undergraduate, I did a study abroad program in Brazil around the themes of race, gender, and class. And so at this time, I already knew I wanted to be a professor, get my PhD, do research. Uh, And one of my biggest influences then and still to this day is Stuart Hall. So my Latin thinking has always revolved around the political stakes of cultural practices, both lived in symbolic and society structured in dominance, particularly, especially through the prisms of race, gender, and class. At this time... I was really committed to focusing on the United States, but I wanted to study abroad in Brazil to kind of have a comparison, right? They had the similar histories of of slavery, uh, size, right, Uh, population, et cetera. So Brazil was a a kind of counterpoint for me to think about issues of race and racism in a kind of more non-U.S. centric uh, perspective. On the trip itself, the first half was fantastic. It's actually led by Jonathan Warren. Uh, and we were in Rio and Minas Gerais. And then the latter part of the program was led by uh, a white woman anthropologist in the state of Bahia, Salvador, uh, Cachoeira, um, and Santa Antonio G. Jesus. And for me, what was really striking was how in Bahia, she would talk about blackness in one of two ways. The first was, and especially aligned with her research, was on African cultural heritage, particularly around capoeira, samba, candomblé. It was always kind of as a positive. She was very uh, uh, effusive about it. Uh, she always praised it and talked about how this is, you know, contributes to the nation, etc. But on the flip side, she would also talk about blackness as a sort of as a as you know being associated as something negative, right? Often related to criminality. She was always telling us, you know, you have to be careful. Remember one time we were actually in Cachoeira and we went to this uh, this festival across the street from the uh, uh, B and B we're staying at, and she like raced over and tried to get us out because she was worried that, you know, literally she said, you know, you could have been robbed, killed, or raped, uh, right? And so this didn't really sit so well with, uh, you know, myself and the other black students and even some of the Latinx students. Um, so for me, what really became apparent was this paradox in Brazil where black cultures are valorized and included and black people social and politically are excluded and also criminalized. So what took me to hip hop uh, in Brazil was thinking about these this contradiction. Uh, one night, uh, this is when the trip is in Salvador and a friend and I are walking in Baja and I hear this loud music and it feels kind of familiar. And as we get closer, I realize it's hip hop. And for those who don't know, Baja is a very touristy and white upper middle class area. So considering it, I just assumed it was probably a hostel. To my shock, it was actually filled with local black folks. And it was actually the kind of folks that uh, the professor, the anthropologist was demonizing uh, throughout the trip. Um, But you see quite a few black Bahians inside. And I distinctly remember there's this uh, skinny, dark skinned brother with a big afro hairstyle with the Shaquille O'Neal jersey, who was about to perform, talking to his manager. And so for me, I found it ironic that here's this hip hop scene that doesn't seem to fit in these dominant notions of Salvador. Uh, And it seemed kind of out of place. And so for me, this registered the question of, you know, what are the popular expressions, lived experiences, cultural politics, and communities of poor and working 
uh, poor and working class black people in Salvador. And for really was thinking about for those who are marginalized in Brazilian society, particularly in Salvador, what are their cultures, right? What are their cultural politics? Um, so this at this moment put me on the on a trajectory to study Brazil for my for my PhD program. So time goes by, I get into my PhD program, I'm thinking about Brazil, but I'm actually not thinking about hip hop. In 2012, which is I think at the time I, around the time I met you, I went back to Salvador for a Portuguese uh, language program through the FLAS. And I had met up with a friend I had met the first time in 2008. And I was telling her about my research interests and she was telling me I should look into the hip hop scene. I didn't even mention hip hop. And honestly, I thought it was kind of cliche, right? I was like, oh, a black man from the United States doing research on hip hop around the globe. Like, that's too easy. But she really pressed me on it. She reached out to a few of our other friends and they were supportive of it. And, you know, I think sometimes for those of us who are ethnographers, we have to kind of realize when we're lucky and and go with it. Right. And so I came back the next summer in 2013. I did preliminary research. Uh, on the hip hop community, these folks introduced me to some hip hop artists, namely graffiti artists. They told me some places to go. Uh, I met with some some rap artists, and so after that, I realized a critical ethnography of the Biden hip hop movement really could be the focus of my dissertation. Uh, and so that was the dissertation. And then coming to write the book was a little bit different. You know, it still builds off of this research. Uh, for me, you know, I had this. I really sat down and, you know, for many of us who know, you know, writing a dissertation, you're kind of writing for four or five people and you're showing your proficiency in your field. So I was really asking myself, what do I want to do differently for the book? And I decided very right, right afterwards, I was doing my postdoc in um, African-American studies at Illinois. I made a concerted effort, concerted effort to center the theories and knowledges produced by black Brazilians themselves, right? To not to see black people in Brazil as objects of study, but also as producers of knowledge. And so this brought me across to Beatriz Nascimento's work uh, among quite a few other folks. Um, and actually her work back then was like extremely hard to find, but I remember I read her pioneering article, the concept of Quilombo, black culture resistance. And it really struck a chord with my own research on the hip hop movement, uh, especially her her argument that quilombos uh, are encampments and about creating alternative social uh, systems in the breaches of anti-black structures. So as I shifted to turning the dissertation into a book, I really reframed the whole argument uh, to understand the hip hop movement as a contemporary quilombo as carrying on a legacy of baronage. So that's how I got, you know, from the the story from, you know, an undergrad studying abroad to the PhD to the book. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that story. I think it's so important to, to hear those kinds of stories for people because so many times it's it's unclear how, you know, many of us came to these topics. And I liked how you talked about kind of hip hop presenting itself and, and at first maybe a little trepidation, but then going with it because, um, you know, when, when opportunities present themselves, it's like, you just have to, you just have to take them. Um, and it just makes sense. Yeah. Um, and so out of it came this, came this great book. Um, and in the book, you're arguing that Bahian hip hop, and I'm quoting you, nourishes, maintains, and retools the Quilombo, uh, or maroon community blueprint to assert black life and diasporic cultures in and against contemporary Brazil. And so you already kind of um, touched on this in your first uh, first response, but uh, you're arguing that hip hop is a site of refuge and communal creation through the idea of the quilombo. And so first, um, I wanted to ask, you know, can you just explain this idea of the quilombo? What is a quilombo? And say more about, you know, your argument uh, in the book. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so to understand what a quilombo is, we have to take a little bit of detour through history. Um, and so quilombos have a long history of black culture and political resistance that actually goes back to Africa um, and the Angola region. And I think that's really important to emphasize because that also in some ways distinguishes it as a model from other forms of maronage uh, in the Americas. And this is not to say one is better than the other, but also at times to resist, uh, you know, homogenization and to be specific about what particular traditions of uh, 
black study we are engaging with. And so to understand the quilombo uh, before, uh, so of course, you know, in my book, it's quilombo with a Q, but before there's the quilombo with a K. And it begins as a um, Imbangala nomadic warrior society in Angola. And quilombo in this context translates to war encampment. And there's a history of resistance on that side of the Atlantic, where this warrior society is also fighting against Portuguese excursions in Africa. And a very specific um, feature of this quilombo is that they actually did not have children, right? The way that they grew the society was actually initiation by outsiders into the society. And this is how they grew. And you can also kind of think about how this translates quite easily to how the quilombo would grow in the Americas, right? Of course, there is childbirth, but also this idea of growing by bringing more people into the quilombo. And also in this context, the quilombo also meant uh, a territory where, uh, like a sacred place where initiation rites are, are taking place. And so this is also important to under, to emphasize the political features of it, but also the cultural and cosmological elements that are going there as well. Um, and of course, here I'm drawing off of Beatriz Nascimento's research on this as well. And so when these Black people are coming and forced into slavery in the Americas, right, you kind of have this, I call it malleability or quilombo liquidity, right? You see the formation of the quilombo change, right? It adapts to, you know, what we might call a given conjuncture, right? So instead of fighting other societies or even Portuguese colonial forces, you now have Black people refusing slavery as a condition in a way of life and escaping from spaces of confinement, dehumanization, and fleeing into hard to reach spaces and creating these spaces of rest, refuge, and communal creation. Um, and so in these spaces, Black people are, you know, these uh, quilombolas are practicing African-derived religions, right? And there's also, this is not a return to say uh, an F- African sense of place, but people are also actively recreating it. And, you know, so it's not reverting back to a kind of certain essentialism, Right. But there's, you know, different African groups that are combining different traditions. There's also syncretism with different indigenous groups. Right. Uh, But also the Quilombo in Brazil, historically, right, was there to protect those who are weak, such as children, elderly, the sick, the, you know, uh, physically afflicted. Right. Uh, To nourish one another through food, through sustenance, uh, protect these settlements from colonial forces. Um, you know, in the article by R.K. Kent, he talks about, I want to say the last 20 years of Palmares, which was the largest uh, maroon community in Brazil, but also the Americas. They were being attacked like almost every every year, every other year. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, these globals were also, you know, they're part of this history of resistance and uh, flight and fugitivity. But it's also important to note to note that these communities are also criminalized by the Portuguese and the Dutch, right? So the 10 biggest quilombos that existed in Brazil's history, I want to say seven or eight of them were destroyed within two years. Uh, But the importance of quilombos are Black people in quilombos uh, have had to fight for their freedom, refuse Brazilian colonialism and slavery, and create a different possibility of the world um, based on various African, even indigenous cosmologies. So for me, you know, think this really emphasizes the idea that a quilombo does not, it's not just a historically specific event, right? It's mindable, it takes on different formations. And this is, of course, what Beatriz Nascimento argues as well, right? That the quilombo is not re- constricted just to history, um, but it's also not constricted to remnant quilombos, which uh, are contem- contemporary quilombo settlements uh, with people who are the descendants of quilombo communities, um, who still occupy the lands of these historical quilombos. And so Beatriz Nascimento, of course, has been instrumental in thinking about quilombos as a diachronic Black cultural politic. And so for her, you know, a quilombo is always based, it's part of a social condition of socially excluded Black people whose cultures are also not accepted, right? And so it's how do these folks forge a sense of black life in the midst of, say, a civic or even a political death, whether that's the colony or the modern nation state. 
but also the quilombo is a mode of self-affirmation, right? And the desire to create a parallel society. Um, and so an important facet about quilombos is not seeking inclusion into the very structure that oppresses Black people, but to find alternative systems that actually center and privilege Black people, particularly the those who are most marginalized, um, to centering their humanity and dignity. So for her, right, she identifies uh, the quilombo in, you know, more modern formations, such as the Samba School, uh, the favela, which many have actually which started as quilombos. Uh, I can think of, you know, a few in Rio and also in Salvador, uh, Bali Funk parties, and even the Tejero, which is uh, a site of uh, a, a religious compound for condomble practitioners. So for me, you know, what, reading through her work, uh, you know, I actually remember reading one of the, uh, an article about Brazilian hip hop and, you know, someone made the kind of a similar point that Brazilian hip hop overall is about creating alternative systems for racially marginalized people. So that's really when I started connecting the dots. Um, and so, you know, for me, I argue that the Bayan hip hop movement is an example of a contemporary urban quilombo, uh, which, you know, has all the criteria, right? The socially excluded black people. These are not folks who are performing uh, the culturally celebrated uh, African-derived cultures in Brazil, right? And they're also creating their own social, alternative social systems, right? And they do this through a variety of ways. And so some unique things is, you know, their culture is both ancestral and diasporic. Um, and this comes out and, you know, their hip hop culture is both lived and expressive. Uh, another unique facet is, you know, really emphasizing the role of media and popular culture as a critical mode of pedagogy and for raising a critical black consciousness. Um, and also what you see in, you know, in Bayan hip hop movement is many people romanticize Salvador and Bayan more generally as this, you know, romantic city with racial harmony and exotic African culturisms. And a lot of these hip hop artists, like, it's actually far from that. This is a place that is equally if not more anti-Black than other places in Brazil and around the globe, right? So for them, it's really important to create spaces of refuge and rest and community away from these spaces of their oppression, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, you know, another feature is a lot of the, in order to create these spaces for these marginalized folks, right, they're creating like radically different modes of connection that trouble, uh, you know, our typical ideas of, let's say, Western notions of gender, Right. And so they're finding different ways to connect with one another. And this is only permissible. Well, not only permissible. Right. But this is extremely important to create these alternative social systems. It's how do we create these alternative social systems, these quilombos that are built around black love rather than, you know, creating internal hierarchies within black communities. And for me, you know, one thing I argue is how, you know, the the Bayan hip hop movement as a quilombo provides a model for a role to black life, right? So it really provides a blueprint. And this, you know, contributes to, you know, broader, bigger, you know, larger discussions within black studies around fugitivity. And so, you know, one thing I, I, you know, I point out in the book is this really provides a model for what do we do after we refuse, after we escape, and after we flee? What do we build? How do we connect what worlds do we want to build? And this is not a hypothetical. This is not even something that's imaginary. This is something that folks are already thinking about and practicing in very real circumstances. Even if this is out of our purview um, of Salvador, uh, da Bahia, or Brazil in general around the diaspora. So this is how, you know, uh, you know, thinking about a quilombo as a historical fact, but also as a critical theory in a mode of black collectivity. And this is also how I applied it to the Biden hip hop movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you so much for that answer. And um, your description of a quilombo took me back to my class. I'm teaching a class on um, race, gender, class, and sexuality in Brazilian film. And my students just watched the film Quilombo, and um, and they've been learning about quilombos. And we also read the historical article by not Kent but Anderson, and um, and so they've uh, they got you know, really, really into it. So um, they have that historical context. And um, I thought it was really generative for you to take the idea of the quilombo and use it to think about uh, hip hop in in Salvador. Um, 
And so you just mentioned this, how you're talking about Salvador Bahia, and which is in the northeast of the country. And so you're really making like an intervention into the geographical ideas of hip hop in Brazil, because I think Sao Paulo tends to be a city in Brazil that people associate with hip hop. Um, but hip hop in Salvador, it, it seems to take this form in a way of hip hop in the, in the United States and other places in that you would see um, MCs, dancers, you know, graffiti, um, MCs are reciting lyrics over beats and rhymes. Um, but of course, hip hop in Salvador has its own particularities. And so I wondered if you see any differences in hip hop in Salvador, um, in either in relation to the U.S. or in Sao Paulo. And, and how does it present these like new or alternative forms of blackness? Yeah. So, I mean, I adore this question because there's just a lot of uh, layers to it. And, you know, I think in some ways, you know, Salvador definitely has its particularities uh, and it, ha- it resonates with certain places. Right. Uh, you know, one thing I always find fascinating is, you know, I, I like to ask some folks, you know, I'm like, oh, you know, who if you were to go to the United States and go to one, uh, you know, these are folks I'm asking in the book and in the, in the research, if you go to one place, you know, in the United States, where do y'all want to go? They're like, Detroit. I'm like, Detroit. Like, you know, it's cold there, right? And they're like, yeah, but that's where Dilla's from. I was like, so not New York, not L.A., not Atlanta, not Chicago. You want to go to Detroit? Like, yes. Right. <laughs> and so I think, you know, one thing I appreciate about that is, you know, the buy-in hip hop artists here are, you know, they're very much, uh, you know, they have their own tastes and distinctions, right? And they're not, you know, a lot of people think that they are just either mimicking Sao Paulo hip hop or U.S. hip hop, right? But there's a lot of uh, even contradiction and complexity here. So I'll say this, that in Salvador, the hip hop scene, um, you know, one, you know, many ways it has this, uh, it is a hip hop scene, right? Which is, I'm making a distinction from say rap, right? Many folks, many, many times made sure I knew the difference between the hip hop movement and hip hop culture, right? And so of course the culture is rap, graffiti, DJing and breakdancing, but the movement is about knowledge and information, right? And these are of course are not exclusive, right? You can't have the movement without culture, but you can have the culture without the movement. Uh, and so for them, the movement is also not just about power, uh, the power of information and knowledge, but it's also committed to social activism. They have a certain militancy, mil, uh, militantism to them. Uh, people regularly told me that Salvador is the most militant scene in all of Brazil. Uh, you know, and of course, I am not going to, you know, I, I take them at their word. I have no proof to back it up, but that is their perspective. Um, and also transforming people's lives, right, and lived realities. Uh, and they have, often call this informal social work, which I find very fascinating. And so another key aspect about hip hop, um, you know, which I think reminds some some older folks of uh, the United States, right, is it, it's more of an underground scene in the U.S. sense. Um, it's not a very lucrative endeavor in Salvador at the very least, right? People will make money off of it. But they usually have some kind of day job. You know, people are uh, video technicians. Someone I know someone who's an accountant. Uh, of course, lots of folks are in school. Some people are going to veterinarian school. Uh, so, you know, people, this is not what, they're not asking hip hop to garner them a salary, which I think is actually important in some ways. Mm-hmm. Now, there are some people who have made a living solely off of that, but that's, that's, I mean, it's not uncommon, but in general, people are not going commercial and they're not having tons of money off of this, right? You have Baco Eshul de Blues, and he's kind of the exception, right? Really well known on the national scene. It's won awards. You know, of course, I write about him a little bit. Uh, you know, in some ways, a lot of hip hop artists critique desires to go mainstream and to sell out. And I talk about in the book how the rapper uh, Vandal Jibardaji, or I guess you would say the true, the true Vandal or the real Vandal. Right. Uh, you know, there should be a refusal to go pop, to go mainstream, to make money off of it. The hip hop should be very community oriented, focused on pedagogy and working with communities in which hip hop comes from. 
uh, and also in Salvador, you know, if, if one's desire is to go mainstream and make a lot of money, there's tons of other musical genres that one can do it in. Uh, it's just not going to be uh, hip hop. It's not going to be like, say, rap music. Uh, stylistically, you know, I'll speak a little bit more to rap music here. Uh, an amazing thing, I think, one thing I, I appreciate is that in Salvador, there are many different sounds and styles. Uh, they don't feel like they're committed to just one particular uh, style. You know, some Palo tends to be a little bit more gritty. Uh, Rio is a little bit more fast paced. But in Salvador, there's all kinds of different styles and influences. So, for example, there's a genre called Sotero, Pagui, uh, Sotero Pago Trapi, which is combining, you know, Sotero for uh, Sotero Politano, someone from Salvador, Pago for Pagoji, and Trapi for trap music. Uh, you know, a lot of people take influences from Brazilian rock music, from uh, Elsa Suarez, uh, Condomble musical influences, dance hall and sound system. You know, so people will borrow from Sao Paulo. But I think there's in some ways a little bit more freedom to experiment with hip hop and rap music than other places where, you know, Sao Paulo, there's like a certain sound you have to adhere to. Um, and I think that also relates to um, people are just really creative artists and fans alike about how they understand and express their blackness. Uh, you know, again, you have this city that's praised and exoticized for its African culturisms, right? And in some ways, they don't want to feel restricted by that, right? And this is not to say they don't valorize it, they don't appreciate it, um, but they can see, you know, blackness as a cultural expression, right? As not being confined to these, in some ways, essentialist notions of, of you know, African purity, etc. Um, and I'll say the other part is, you know, and I think this is actually true across the board. And so maybe this is where there's some similarities, uh, uh, at least in Brazil, is that, you know, hip hop as, you know, a, a cultural genre from the margins, particularly for black folks, is not about uh performing a permissible blackness, right? There's no notion of, hey, I have to make myself acceptable in order to be included, right? Often there's a structural critique of, you know, there's a structural critique of racism that plays out in very quotidian ways. Um, you know, whether that's where one lives, experiences with the police, uh, trying to find simple joys, etc. Um, and so it's really important to emphasize that, you know, there's a variety of ways in which people express their blackness and they don't feel confined by certain ways. But there's also still a commitment to talk about the social and political elements that also are tied to blackness. Right. And so you can't have one without the other. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so throughout the book, um, you elaborate on how hip hop in Salvador, it builds a quilombo space in uh, in space, gender relations, aesthetic, clothing, information sharing, and consciousness. And you walk us through these different aspects um, of the Quilombo in, in all the chapters. And so I wanted to talk about just some of these aspects. And I wanted to start with the cover of the book because it's, it's very striking. And you have this image of a hip hop artist, um, DJ Nai Kieze. And um, she has uh, dark, dark brown skin, closely cut uh, blondish hair, this multicolored scarf uh, framing her, her face. And she wears these pointy red glasses and these gold hoop earrings. So I just wanted to describe a little bit of it. And then, and then this kind of aligns with this chapter you have on aesthetics of the Quilombo, um, which is characterized by artifice rather than just being like natural or Afrocentric. And so I wondered if, if um, you could talk about this idea of, um, of the Quilombo and its relationship to artifice and aesthetics. Yeah. So actually, I, I'd like to start a little bit with Nye, DJ Nye and her significance. So one, that photo is from her. So she actually had that photo and she let me use it. So I want to give her, uh, I just want to use a moment to like recognize like her just generosity towards uh, towards me in this book and this project. Um, you know, one thing one thing I want to highlight is the importance of her in general in the hip hop movement. So this may not be this may not be any surprise, uh, but in general, in 
in Bahia, but also across Brazil, women are generally relegated to the sidelines in hip hop, either as backup singers, as managers, a.k.a., you know, the girlfriends who do the free labor for the boyfriends who are the rappers, um, or they're sometimes they're left off of festival lineups or they're paid less. They're not taken as seriously. Uh, and, you know, often I ask men why there aren't w- more women artists in the hip hop movement. And they just look really confused about why would I ask this question? They're like, you know, give me this look like, well, it's self-evident. Like they're not serious. They're not as good. Uh, you know, these things. Um, so this is why in the book I try to, you know, I try to show how the women, especially the black women in the hip hop movement, just have these phenomenal insights and stories and experiences they're really central to understanding the hip hop movement as the emergent quilombo. Um, so that's the general scene as far as, you know, women, even within a culture that defines itself as a space of on the margins, still has its own margins within it. So when I started this research over a decade ago, uh, I was one of the only women uh, DJs in all of Salvador. And I cannot remember any others at the time. This is not to say she was the only one, but like it was a very rare thing. And she was maybe 20 at the time. And she was DJing for the Boom Boom Clap record label with folks like Koskaki, Jahome and others. So this was a big deal because, as you point out, you know, she's dark skin. She also has she's also a condom blade practitioner. So this is, you know, not only is she one of the few women, but it's also really important what kind of black woman she is. And so besides how stunning the photo is, which I just absolutely adore, uh, how amazing she is as a human being, I just really want to put her on the cover to drive home the importance, her importance as a reference for a lot of black girls and women who came up in the scene and had, you know, a model that they could look up to, right? Um, And so now today, you know, there's a lot more women and girls in the hip hop movement as artists. And so Nye, you know, who's now in her early 30s, you know, has been, you know, a point of reference for a lot of folks. Um, and so for me, I, I, you know, it's really important to put her on the cover to recognize some of the trailblazing work she's done. So for the question of the artifice, which, you know, ties into the cover, you know, for me, it was really thinking about uh, noticing just the everyday aesthetics of folks in uh, the Bayan hip hop movement. And for me, I'm always influenced and always thinking about Stuart Hall's uh, article, What is this Black and Black Popular Culture? Where he writes, and I quote, think of how these cultures have used the body as if it were, and it often was the only cultural capital we had. We have worked on ourselves at the canvases of representation, end quote. Right. So for me, I've always tried to pay attention to how Black people have self-styled, right? So throughout my research, I always found really fascinating the explicit manipulation of certain Black hairstyles. And, you know, I mean, these for me, these styles did not necessarily fit within what we call the aesthetics of the natural, you know, such as an Afro hairstyle or dreadlocks or cornrows, et cetera. Uh, and here, you know, I was really influenced by Quabina Mercer's early work, who notes that, you know, natural hairstyles are actually not natural at all. And by that, what he means is, you know, often we think about natural as not having to interfere or manipulate or put any kind of effort into it. You know, what he argues is, you know, we put a lot of manipulation and effort and attention into styles that look natural, right? And so what I repeatedly saw was how people... And, you know, the buy-in hip-hop scene would manipulate style and put, you know, considerable effort on their hairstyles that have very colorful uh, and one might even say kitsch uh, hairstyles. And so what I saw was, you know, they were playing with the natural style, but adding their own artistic touch to it. Right. And so for them, you know, I just really noticed how hair was a canvas in which they came to represent themselves. And so, you know, different examples are like on the cover of the book, you know, folks bleach their hair. And this is not actually to adhere to a Eurocentric standard. I want to make sure that's very clear. Right. Like the the very, very, you know, platinum blonde, vibe, you know, uh, neon blonde is very much different than someone bleaching their hair, you know, trying to look like they're naturally blonde. Right. Uh, they actually want people to know this isn't a real hairstyle. Right. They're not trying to fool anybody. 
Uh, other methods were having multicolored uh, box braids. You know, I remember putting my uh, field notes. I'm like, you know, it looks like a uh, like a Skittle colors, right? Um, and so, you know, reflecting on, I was like, well, this is clearly not Eurocentric, but it's not necessarily the natural aesthetic either. And so, thinking about the opposite of natural, I was like, well, is it artificial? And as a nerd, as many of us are, you know, I dove into the etymology of artificial. And so I started looking at artifice, too. And what I found out was that the artifice is not necessarily something that's fake or a cheap imitation, but rather, you know, by definition, it's a set of clever and artful skills. And this helped me rethink about the aesthetics uh, in the hip hop movement. You know, and I think... DJ Nike SE is a, an example of that on the cover. And it was a way for folks to position themselves in relation to Eurocentric and also Afrocentric hairstyles. Um, and in a way that position, you know, calls attention to their positions that are different than, say, some of the Black folks who are more accepted in Brazil. And part of the artifice for me was how do folks make beautiful the groups and populations that society deems to be abject or deviant, right? And so instead of asking themselves to be, you know, to redeem themselves by adhering to a certain natural aesthetic, right? They're like, well, no, we're fine just as we are. We're going to style ourselves in our own way, which our own set of tastes and aesthetics that we're going to find beautiful for ourselves, right? So, you know, and part of this also is troubling a lot of gender norms. So we go back to Nye on the cover, right? You know, she has short hair, but she also has bleached hair. And one of the things I talk about in the book is, you know, technically the book or technically her hair is natural and in, in its texture, right? Uh, but this is not always seen as a natural hairstyle for black women. And by that, what I mean is, you know, a lot of black women um, with short hair are masculinized, right? And so, you know, and this also, you know, the masculinization of black women does not just go, you know, it's not just about hairs, but other factors as well. And you know, it, it, you know, appears and manifests in others, uh, uh, in other ways, right? But for Nye, right, what she does is she takes that short hair, right, which in many ways is not seen as being properly feminine, which is a Western gender norm, right? And she makes it beautiful in a clearly feminine way. Right. So as part of her broader bodily appearance with the makeup, with the lipstick, the gold earrings, the fabric. Right. And so she's taken, you know, the supposedly the image of a deviant black woman. Right. And signifying that as beautiful and also in a feminine way uh, that doesn't adhere to these dominant rubrics of Eurocentrism. Eurocentrism or Afrocentrism, right? And so what are the clever and artful ways that people are making those who aren't supposed to be deemed beautiful, beautiful? Now, I also will say that these are fantastic and it's beautiful. There are also potential consequences to this. I also write about how the police in Brazil detained a 16-year-old Black boy named Diego with strawberry blonde Afro hair. Right. And just like in the United States, these encounters are very scary, rarely pleasant, um, and they can be quite lethal. Right. So part of the encounter with him was they were kicking off his hat. They were punching him and calling him homophobic, homophobic slurs. Right. So they called him a thief, uh, a bandit, said his hair is a disgrace. Right. Um and, and again, call him certain homophobic slurs, right? And this is a way to stigmatize him, right? To say, you are also not adhering to proper notions of masculinity, and we're going to punish you for this deviation, right? So for a black man to have an Afro that's also colored, right? Something That's, that's not something that men are supposed to do, right? Um, so, but part of this artifice is, you know, making, you know, the folks who are deemed socially excluded, who are seen as deviant, as abject, is trying to make them beautiful, but also by playing with certain gender norms. Uh, but also, you know, doing so can open them up to a variety of, uh, of violent acts as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was a really interesting chapter in the book. And I, I like this idea of artifice as well, because it whenever um, I teach about like 
black hair or natural hair, you know, students will always point out, but even natural hair is not, it's not fully just natural. It's not just like you didn't do anything to it. You know, you're, you're still manipulating it. And so I thought that this concept is also a way to, um, as, as you've laid out to, to talk about that kind of manipulation, but it's not, as you said, um, just trying to follow like a Eurocentric norm as well. So, um, yeah, so I thought I thought this was a great concept and a great way to think about um, black aesthetics in, in Brazil, but it, it has this portability as well that I know other people will find really, really interesting and fascinating um, and applicable in other places. Um, and so another aspect of the relations of the Quilombo and Salvador, uh, Salvadorian hip hop, um, are different forms of masculinity. And again, you, you kind of touched on that a little bit toward the end of your last response, but you also write about how dominant forms of masculinity um, can be based on detachment and they can lead to, to disconnection. Um, and so how are hip hop artists displaying other modes of black masculinity that you saw? Yeah, chapter four. I distinctly remember writing this in 2017. I've been working on this for quite a bit of time. So, you know, there are lots of black men and even black women who are working to subvert, uh, you know, dominant modes of masculinity uh, that are not just confined to the hip hop scene, but are pervasive throughout the black Brazilian community, throughout the Brazilian community, throughout the world. Um, and part of that is also want to acknowledge that, you know, there is still quite a bit of hypermasculinity, sexism, homophobia among men in the community. But in this chapter, I really want to point to and, and recognize and make legible you know, these other models of black masculinity uh, that are aligned with the Quilombo sensibility of alternative social systems and thinking about these social systems as our socialities and the way we connect with each other and the way we have to reconnect. And what are we willing to give up in order to have more fuller socialities with one another that are aligned with the Quilombo sensibility, right? And so for me, you know, borrowing from say, you know, well not say, but from Mark Anthony Neal, right? His notion of illegible masculinities, right? I was looking for that too. And then putting it in within a uh, Quilombo model. And so, you know, part of this is, you know, sometimes I don't even know if these folks are recognizing that they are subverting dominant modes of ma black masculinity. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I think they are. And I don't think whether or not they recognize it doesn't undervalue what they do, because what they're doing is, you know, arguing the book is, you know, so often black men, we are valued for um physical dominance or physical attributes, whether that is cultural or gendered or athletic or sexual, um, being kind of stoic and being unemotional, which also I think is a misnomer or a misreading, because I think there is certain ways that men are allowed to be emotional, right? Through anger, uh, modes like that. But there's a certain range of emotions we're not allowed to have or we are chastised for. Uh, black men are expected to be a provider and also a, you know, a sexual conqueror. And part of what I was thinking about, what would it mean to value black men, not for our physical attributes, but for our emotional and affective uh, capabilities? And, you know, so I start off, uh, you know, thinking about the way that black men are showing intimacy with one another. And, you know, one of the songs I look at is Baco Eshul de Blues's uh, Disculpa Jay-Z, which is a song about breaking up with Jay-Z, who was his idol. And to my knowledge, he does not know Jay-Z, um, you know, and maybe after the song he met him, right? But, you know, he actually does not, like the, the song is not about him actually knowing Jay-Z. It's about his relationship to the image of Jay-Z. Right. And so he raps about trying to mimic Jay-Z as a certain diasporic model of black masculinity that, you know, moves through hip hop, you know, global hip hop circuits. For him, this is really a way to disassociate from his own reality, to not deal with his own internalities, uh, especially around mental health. And part of that is he realized he loves Jay-Z, but he's used it as a crutch to never actually love himself. Um, he's valued himself for his ability to mimic Jay-Z because that is what often black men are 
uh, praise for, right? And so talking about Jay-Z, right? You know, he talks about being married to Beyonce. So, you know, your value as having a desirable wife, having money, popularity, these kinds of things. And so, but part of this has distracted him from confronting himself. And, you know, for him, Jay-Z has kind of led to his own, you know, alienation. And so what's important about the song that I argue is that, you know, Bach was asking for permission, uh, not permission, uh, for forgiveness, but he's actually breaking up with Jay-Z, right? Uh, you know, we typically think about breaking up with someone as something reserved for romantic relationships, particularly black men, right? And men in general, right? And he's actually applying this to, you know, a friend in, in certain ways, right? Or an idol. And he's explaining why, right? There's a certain level of openness and vulnerability that he expresses in the song, right? That we don't, it's not often common uh, among black folks in Brazil or across the diaspora. And what I find very fascinating is that he also wants to still be on good terms with Jay-Z, right? And again, this is purely symbolic. He doesn't actually know Jay-Z, right? Uh, but I found this as a very important example of black men being vulnerable, but also valuing our friendships with one another to the same extent we would with our romantic partners, right? Um, and that requires a different level of intimacy, social connection, uh, communication than what black men are typically afforded. Um, so, you know, that part of the chapter was analyzing some songs and I also tied in some ethnographic uh stories and so the other part of it was and this is really the the impetus for this chapter was uh you know often i will go to carlos's and uh, joao's apartment in the periphery here and you know i'd normally ride by the day because it's so close to the equator you know the sun sets by 5 36 so basically anytime i'm leaving it's dark out and predominantly carlos but also joao uh, they will both just drop anything. You know, they would drop everything and walk me to the bus stop, which is about 20 minutes away. And they would wait for me to get on the bus. And sometimes that would be an hour, right? And every single time they would tell me, you know, let me know you got home safe, right? Uh, and I'm telling I've seen them, you know, drop arguments with their girlfriends, recording sessions, etc. And I always really appreciated it. Now, there was this time, I think it was the following summer, um, I was there back there doing research, and Carlos was walking me to the bus stop, and I said, like, you know, man, I, I, I know where I'm going, I've done this many times, I can, you know, I can do it myself, right, I can walk myself, He's and he looked at me like I was fucking silly, sorry, maybe I'm not supposed to cuss, uh, but it was that expression, right, he's like, how, like, like you're being ridiculous, he was just like, nah, like, I don't feel comfortable with that. I really want to make sure you get home safe. I'm, you know, I'm concerned about you and not in a patronizing way, but a very genuine way. And this is still really early on in my research and us developing our own relationship. Right. And of course, there's the researcher research dynamic, but also, you know, as many ethnographers knows, these folks become our friends, too. And, you know, but even in this early stage, my safety as a fellow black man even from the United States, was paramount to him, right? He's like, no, 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 you are not going to get hurt, not on my watch, right? And he's like, you know, I'm just not going to risk it. And the important thing he said to me, and I'll never forget it, he goes, you would do the same for me if we we're in the United States, right? And so this is really where this chapter came out of, right? You know, for him, it wasn't about who was more manly, who was more dominant, who was older. And the ironic thing is actually Carlos is younger than I am. Right. Mm -hmm. He's like, it's not about who is, you know, the most capable. Right. It's not about it's not about you and I. It's not about me asserting my dominant masculinity over you. It's about protecting one another. And if the circumstances were changed, I will gladly follow your lead to make sure that I get home safe. Right. And so beyond just this idea that we think that black men don't value other black men's lives. Right. I thought it was really important that in this case, you know, Carlos is showing a commitment, uh, a certain kind of intimacy, right? To be comfortable, uh, you know, that our masculinity is not going to prevent us from protecting one another, right? To protect the collective, to move 
with one another, et cetera. Um, and this is something that not just Carlos, I mean, black women would make sure, would walk me to the bus stop too, which I always found kind of ironic, but I was like, let me also just follow their lead, right? And for them, they're like, no, 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 trust us. We know how this particular neighborhood works. People know us. And if you're with us, you'll be safe. I was like, all right, bet, right? Uh, and so I think that's really important to emphasize, uh, you know, did I struggle with some fragile masculinity during some of these things? Sure. Right. Uh, but as I came to be more comfortable with, I was like, I started to understand the different ways that it wasn't about my masculinity uh, or Carlos's. Right. It was about protecting the collective. Right. And so if we can rethink the different socialities we can have with one another. Right. Instead of, you know, we don't always have to be the protector. Sometimes we can have our homies be our protector for us. Right. Uh, but this position is not set in stone. Right. It can be, you know, it's swappable. So for me, that was really important to emphasize that um, in this quilombo alternative social system and the buy-in hip-hop movement, right, is that Black men are creating different socialities that disrupt, right, these typical notions of Black masculinity, uh, you know, that typically, you know, focus on our notions of dominance, physical capabilities, not being emotional, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, that was a chapter that... I think that's like the first chapter I wrote and one I just keep coming back to because it was it might have been the most enjoyable one for me to write, to be perfectly honest. Hmm. Wow. Yeah, that's really that's really cool. I, I like the, the chapter a lot because I think um, it it aligns with, I think, many contemporary conversations that are starting to emerge now again about masculinity and men and emotions and how to express them and and uh, and those kinds of conversations. So it also struck me. Um, and also the other thing I'll say about this chapter is, you know, I wanted to have, especially the first chapter I had really, really, really about gender to not just be about femininity or about women. Right. Um, and I, I remember someone asked me, you know, you like, you have two chapters on gender here, but they're not next to one another. I'm like, I don't want them next to each other. Right. Like I have a certain vision, a, you know, a certain vision of how the order of the chapter should go. And actually, I really like where the chapter on black masculinity is. And I'll get the black. And actually, I was like, I want to, you know, drive it home, you know, bring it all home with the chapter on black femininity. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it was it was a chapter I felt, you know, was really it's been on my mind for a very long time. And some I just wanted to, you know, really get out. Mm hmm. And so as you talked about in that chapter, um, the, the book is a mix of analyzing lyrics, um, you know, talking to, to different people um, and ethnographic material. And, but, the, but the book overall in each chapter is, is very ethnographic. Um, and so I know that readers will also really, um, really find that valuable. And in the book, you're taking us all over the place to like hip hop concerts, performances, people's homes and gatherings, festivals, open mic nights. Um, some of the research is taking place late at night. Um, and I appreciated one time you mentioned taking notes on your phone um, at times. And I think that's important because ethnographers have to employ different means of, of documenting this this information, um, there's there's no one way, um, and so I wondered if you could talk about how the research unfolded um, and how was it to to carry out this this kind of research. Yeah, it's it's funny because as I get older, and I don't know if you have this too, I, I enjoy a good methods question, right? Methods always seem like something you just have to uh, persevere through these you know these forms of thinking. But now as I you know I get. Uh, deeper into my career, I really like reflecting on it much more. So, you know, I use a variety of methods. Uh, and part of this is also, I mean, folks today just have so many more tools at their disposal. But I think, you know, for me, I think some of the things I had to do also have important lessons for people who are still doing ethnography today. So by that, um, you know, of course, I had like a small notebook I would carry around with me jot down some notes, observations, um, not so great for taking to a club as one might imagine. Uh, so, you know, I would take, sometimes I would take notes on a phone. Uh, you know, the first, I think three, four years I had an old school T9. So terrible for taking notes, but you know, sometimes I go to the bathroom and type out, you know, uh, I remember I typed one time, you know, hats, right. Cause I was looking at people's hats at this one particular club. Um, but that also actually gave me the freedom to just really be present in the places I was at, right? And so I just 
few small notes here and there about things to remember. And what I would do is, and, you know, again, no surprise, you know, hip hop clubs, event shows, sometimes they go quite late into the night, like three, four in the morning. And I remember I would get home, I'd be tired and I would open my laptop for like five, 10 minutes. And if I said, say hats, I would try to list the different hats I remembered, right? And why they're important. Nothing extensive, but just to just to make sure I don't lose too much. So then the next morning, I would wake up, make my coffee, and then I would spend about an hour or so writing more extensive field notes, right? So I'm like, okay, this person wearing, you know, the Chicago Bulls hat, what were they wearing? What kind of reflections do I have, et cetera? Uh, you know, I did a little more than 20 interviews, and I actually did not use as many as I thought I would. Uh, I just had like a solid five to six that were really rich, and I just kept going back to them. But, you know, with uh, one thing I did do was use the interviews as more so as entry points for, you know, participant observation. So I'd always tell people I'll meet them at their homes or their neighborhoods and we can do the interview there. And, you know, of course, people really appreciate the convenience and me making the effort. And so when I would arrive, you know, there's a lot of things that happened before the actual interview. They would take me around their neighborhood, introduce me to people give a brief history, uh, even about themselves. And so a lot of times it's information that I was just not going to get in the interview. And, you know, a lot of folks still live at home with their parents. It was very common. You don't move out until you get married. So, you know, people would bring me into their homes and, you know, like, you know, mama, you know, mom, this is Bryce. You know, he's a researcher. He's here to interview me about my hip hop career. You know, she's so proud and, you know, like a typical Brazilian mother, she's like, oh, have you eaten? Are you hungry? And you make the first, you know, like, oh, I'm okay. She's like, no, 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 you must eat. I make the best food in all of town. You're like, okay, okay, you know. Uh, but then, you know, she starts telling you stories while you're eating. And so, you know, interviews, I got great information out of the de- out of the interviews, but also a lot of the things that went around the interview were also just equally rich, right? And so, again, even as we have all these tools that are disposable today, at our disposal today, you know, some things are just tried and true, at least in my, at least these are some of the things that I was doing too, um, you know, on my ethnographic journey. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one other thing I'll say, and I joke about this with my friends now, uh, my non-hip-hop friends, is that, you know, oftentimes they would invite me out to all these amazing non-hip-hop events and parties, and I'd have to decline. It's like, oh, I got to go to this show tonight, et cetera. And they would tease me. Uh, but, you know, like doing something like this sounds great and glamorous. And I had a great time doing it. And, you know, I've made very, you know, deep connections and friendships with a lot of folks. But at the same time, you know, it's a certain commitment you have to have in order to carry out our research. Right. You know, you're not. Yes, we are, quote unquote, hanging out. Right. But you have to make a certain effort and sometimes you have to make sacrifices. So, you know, ethnographically, those are a lot of things I was doing was, you know, just trying to always be around, you know, go to people where they're at. Uh, You know, sometimes I would see an event like seeing on Facebook, like, oh, you know, there's going to be this hip hop show. I'll go there. And then sometimes I would see somebody I don't want to interview and get in contact with. Go up and, you know, say hi. I'm Bryce. You know, I'm researching the hip hop community here. And, you know, if I knew they knew someone I already knew, I would name drop like, hey, I've already done a re- you know interview with so and so, things like that. So, you know, it's being in the people business has a certain, uh, you know, working with people is great. It also has its own uh, uh, rhythm. And part of that, too, is, and so I'll say one last thing. I got stood up so many times for interviews Mm -hmm. and I think that was people's way of testing me. Right. Some people just show up late. I remember one guy, uh, I'm not even mad. Right. He stood me up three times at different places in the city too. Right. And for me, I'm like, you know, these people don't owe us anything, right. They're doing us a favor by opening up their lives their stories, their, you know, their different, you know, uh, uh, knowledges, et cetera. So, you know, it's just part of the game. Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I remember waiting hours for, for an interview. I maybe arrived at 9 a.m. and the interview didn't happen till 5 because of people running late, taking buses around these cities, etc. It's It really is. Um, I think people don't always see all the work that goes into it because you come away with, say, one interview, but you've spent 
the day you've you've been you've waited three times it's it's, it's a lot of time and and commitment um, yeah and i mean keep showing up yeah i mean i remember you know doing interviews with certain folks uh i mean to do a one hour interview i would have to block off six hours mm-hmm. two hours to take a bus somewhere a half hour to an hour just to wait for someone for being late and and even though i know brazilians are typically late I would still arrive on time in the off chance that they're like, oh, but you're from the United States and y'all show up on time. I knew it was never going to happen. It never did. Right. Uh, you know, two hours for the interview itself, maybe two and a half, three, and then another two hours, you know, for the bus ride back home. So, yeah, you know, one day of work can get you one hour interview. And, and mm-hmm. you know, people don't always see that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, and so you have this other uh, kind of this footnote um, in the book, and it's regarding ethnographic research. And um, and you, you tell ethnographers, you know, it's kind of a warning that they may not be able to, to attend every event. And you note how this kind of research can be very tiring. And um, and so your, your research is clearly this in-depth account. Um, you are present in, in many places, um, which testifies to your consistent presence. Um, but of course, you know, we're all only one person. And so I wondered if you could just talk a little bit about this warning that you have in the, uh, so toward the end of the book. Yeah. So, you know, I, I don't think there's many times when eth- ethnographers, we talk about the importance of taking our, taking care of ourselves in the field, right? Uh, often we hear people who are praised for the sacrifices they make, whether that's getting sick or how many divorces they've had or whatever financial ruin they've, you know, gotten themselves into. Um, And for me, you know, it was just, you know, I'm talking about the night of the black beauty at Iliaye. And it's the first and still the only time I've gotten to go. And I'm still upset that I had to leave early, but it was just kind of the right thing for me to do. I just did not feel well all day. When I got there, I didn't feel well. I tried to eat, didn't feel well, you know, get water, just nothing was working. And then inside the the venue was just really hot and humid. And I kind of felt like I was going to faint. And I just told my friend, I'm like, hey, I'm so sorry. I got to go. She looked at me like, you just got here like 20 minutes ago. I was like, I know, but I'm just not feeling well. And like, I'm just not going to be able to like push through. Right. For me, it really felt important to take care of myself that time even though I knew this was a big night for me, for this research, and even just, you know, still so far, I've only been, you know, it was a once in a lifetime opportunity, though I do hope to go again. (laughs) And so, you know, I just felt it was necessary, even if just a footnote, to just tell other ethnographers or people who are interested in ethnographer that sometimes you just have to, you know, take an L and just, you know, tap out and just take it, and that you don't always have to push yourself through, you know, beyond your physical boundaries. Yeah, that's an important, um, important warning. Absolutely. Um, and so in the conclusion of the book, uh, you mentioned that not everything is a quilombo. And, um, and so you relate the concept to the black radical tradition and this concept of fugitivity, which you talked about um, in, the, in the beginning. Um, but again, you're, you're clear that not everything is the black radical tradition or fugitivity. Um, and so how do you see the specificity of this concept? And, and what would you want readers to take away? Yeah. So, you know, I've been half jokingly telling people that I'm worried about the Jay-Z brunch crew calling themselves a Quilombo or a Maroon. Right. Or people are going to talk about, you know, the black radical hustle tradition, you know, praising hustle culture. Uh, And so for me, I I think I am anticipating and especially as Maronage and fugitivity becomes uh, more widespread. In in, a, in the academy, um, you know, I just wanted to kind of pump the brakes on everybody trying to say everything is a quilombo. And so for me, I think one thing that's really important about a quilombo is that, you know, a quilombo is not seeking inclusion and acceptance and permissibility into a dominant structure. And it's also not trying to create a parallel society that mirrors the dominant society, right? That is... You know, a quilombo is not, at least I would argue, a quilombo is not going to also mirror, you know, these internal hierarchies around class, gender, sexuality, colorism, etc. Right. Uh, so, you know, there's there's that, you know, so that that was the, the impetus between saying not everything is a black radical tradition um, and not everything is fugitivity. And the important thing for me 
and what I really, you know, learned from doing research with the hip hop community all these years is, you know, when we talk about fugitivity, one thing I think the buy-in hip hop movement illustrates as being representative of this Quilombo history is, you know, it's okay to want to dismantle all the structures of human suffering that organize the, the contemporary world. And that's fine. But we have to think about what other worlds do we want to build? So after we take flight, we reassemble. What do we want to build? And, you know, not only what and and thinking about this beyond what can we imagine? Right. But also what the hip hop community really highlights is that people are already thinking about what that world looks like um, and they're living it. They're practicing it. Uh, You know, I say they're. I think I say something along the lines of like the rehearsing it as a certain choreography, right? So there's this, so, you know, when this moment does come, we're not starting from scratch. There's this been historical mm-hmm. blueprint. Uh, but again, it has to start with those who are socially excluded, those who are most marginalized, learning to center Black people's humanity and dignity, right? And deconstructing these, these different discourses and structures of human hierarchies. Um, and then it's just really important to think about what other worlds that we can build that won't reproduce uh, the inequalities of Western civilization. Great. And so now that this book um, is out into the world and uh, it's making making its way around, um, what are you working on next or what projects uh, are you thinking about or do you have on the horizon coming up? Yeah, so right now um, I'm working on my next re- next research project, uh, which analyzes the intersection between pop culture and the state of exception. And so for me, really, you know, I think when we think about the state of exception, we think of very somber and serious places like the border, detention centers, internment camps, etc. Um, and often at spaces that are out of sight. And so for me, I've been interested in how the state uses media and pop culture uh, to make the state of exception look like a place of pleasure and cultural consumption. In order to do that, there has to be a certain security apparatus and political repression against often the very communities whose cultures are being celebrated, right? Uh, So like here in Brazil, um, Carnival is one example, right? That you have all this Black culture, they're being celebrated in floats and trios, uh, right? But also in the street, you have a lot of police violence against poor working class Black folks in the Pipoca or in the streets. Um, so right now, uh, I'm researching this as uh, uh, the Fulbright Scholar of Racial Studies at the Federal University of Bahia here in Brazil. So that's what I'm working on uh, as the next project. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. So we will look out for that. And congratulations on the the Fulbright. And um, uh, I wish you much much productivity in your time in Brazil right now. Great. Thank you so much, Reagan. Thank you. So thank you. I'm I'm Reagan Gillum, and I've been talking to Dr. Bryce Henson, who is the author of the book Emergent Quilombos: Black Life and Hip Hop in Brazil, published by the University of Texas Press. Thank you so much for writing this book and for sharing it with us on the podcast. Thank you.